am the pastor here at Valley Hope. Thanks for being with us. Um, this morning is the, uh, the first week uh, of Advent. There are four Sundays in Advent, this season of waiting. Um, we're going to, through the next four weeks, be tracking with um, the scriptures, the readings that a lot of churches around the world uh, are, are doing. And you'll see these themes um, knit together through all of these weeks. They often center around um, Jesus' teachings about his second coming and prophetic uh, description of what is like when the day of the Lord will come. And this is really different than what our culture is preparing us for. Um, you know, people have had their Santa stuff out since, I don't know, November 1st. Um, and especially the day after Thanksgiving, people are going hard into the Christmas season. And, uh, and traditionally, that's just not what the church has always done. Um, traditionally, Advent comes before Christmas. You, you do Advent all the way up to Christmas Day, and then Christmas Day, you get two weeks of feasting. Um, and the, the feasting, you're prepared for that by the stoking of your hunger in, in Advent. So I wanted to, um, there's a, there was a column in the New York Times uh, yesterday by Tish Harrison Warren. She's a priest in the Anglican Church as well as her husband, um, She's a really fantastic writer, and she wrote about the nature of Advent um, for the New York Times. I don't know why the New York Times asked her to do that, um, but I'm glad that they did. So I'm not going to read her whole thing, but I just wanted to read some of her comments about what this season is, is about. In the church calendar, every period of celebration is preceded by a time of preparation. Historically, Advent, the liturgical season that begins four Sundays before Christmas Day, as a way to prepare our hearts and minds and souls for Christmas. For Christians, Christmas is a celebration of Jesus' birth. The light has come into darkness, and as the Gospel of John says, the darkness could not overcome it. But Advent bids us first to pause and to look with complete honesty at that darkness. To practice Advent is to lean into an almost cosmic ache, our deep, wordless desire for things to be made right, the incompleteness we find in the meantime. We dwell in a world still racked with conflict, violence, suffering, darkness. Advent holds space for our grief and reminds us all that all of us, in one way or another, are not only wounded by the evil in the world, but are also wielders of it, contributing our own moments of unkindness or impatience or selfishness. We need communal rhythms that make deliberate space for both grief and joy. For me, the old saying rings true, hunger is the best condiment. Abstaining for a moment from the clamor of compulsive jollification and instead leaning into the reality of human tragedy and of my own need and brokenness allows my experience of glory at Christmas time to feel not only more emotionally sustainable, but also more vivid, vital, and cherished. Our response to the wrongness of the world and of ourselves can often be an unhealthy escapism. And we can turn to the holidays as anesthesia from pain as much as anything else. We need collective space as a society to grieve, to look long and hard at what is cracked and fractured in our world and in our lives. Only then can celebration become deep, rich, and resonant, not as a saccharine act of delusion, but as a defiant act of hope.
that's what we're going to be giving ourselves over to in the season of Advent to seriously contemplate the nature of what we are longing for and to reset our hopes not on, um, not on an atmosphere or an event or a product or the look of joy in your child's eyes when you give them a gift, but instead to reset our hopes and make sure that they hang on Jesus and Jesus alone. So uh, you'll see a lot of cues in here that things are different. You'll notice that there's purple here. That's why this light is purple. Traditionally, purple is this color, not just of uh, royalty, but of repentance. So purple will come back in the season of Lent. Um, that's why you smell frankincense. It's to hopefully when you come in here, that you are cued in to what we would say is real time. What we're describing is what's really happening. And the world has its own calendar, but the church has a real calendar. And we're hoping to live by that real calendar. So things will look different, they may feel different, smell different. Um, and that's all just to get you and I to pay attention together to what we are hoping for in this season. So um, I'm going to read some passages here uh, throughout the Bible. Um, our call to worship was from the Psalms. This uh, is from... Uh, I'm going to read the passage that Ben Lillard is going to read later for the lighting of the Advent candle, so you'll hear it twice. But this is Isaiah 2, 1 through 5. And then we'll be in the book of Romans next. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amoz, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem should come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and shall be lifted up above the hills. And all the nations shall flow to it, and many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go, to the, shall go the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations, and shall decide disputes for many peoples, they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. This is from Romans 13, starting at verse 11. Beside this you know the time. That is, the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And finally, in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 24, starting at verse 36. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, 
They were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be left in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake. for You do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is spoken to us and over us that it penetrates our hearts. God, I pray that you would help us to attend to your voice, that you would open up our ears and our eyes that we may hear and see. Father, help us to be hungry with anticipation for your coming. and Let us live watchful, vigilant lives. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Advent, the word, it means coming. Means arrival. And in this season in the church's calendar, we are we're not pretending that Jesus has not been born yet. We're not saying, man, I can't wait till Jesus is born. That's not what we're doing. We know he's been born. This is not a collective act of corporate um, deliberate forgetfulness. We know Jesus has been born. What we're what we're looking forward to is his second coming. And we're looking forward to the way that he will come differently than the way that he came the first time. Jesus came uh, in, in humility. He's unremarked upon in many ways, born in absolute humble circumstances, unseen and forgotten by most of the world. And that is not the way that Jesus is coming the second time. The way that Scripture describes Jesus' coming is that the king may have been born in a manger, but he is coming as a king the next time. And so we are looking forward in the expectation to that coming. And we are looking forward to that with joy because of the way that he came the first time. So we're not similarly forgetting that part of the story either. We're not just saying, well, we're, we'll give a day to celebrating Jesus' birthday and also just kind of mash it together. We're saying because of the way that Jesus was born the first time, we look forward in anticipation to the way that he's coming the next time. The stories are interlinked, and it is not an act of forgetfulness through the year that allows us to experience the story for the first time. It is blending and knitting the story together that enables us to live the story best. And so the scriptures here that we're looking at today is the act that is required of the people of God during this season, and of course for all of our lives, is to look inward and to recognize that the power of sin is in us and not just out there. And this is a a fundamental act of memory that is required of the people of God through all of scripture And things often go wrong for Israel, for the people of God, when they fail in this act of remembrance. When they fail to see that they too are the ones that need the mercy of God. They tend to draw the world into neat little camps. Those bad people and us good people. 
And it allows Israel to constantly look outside of itself and and ask and plead for God to come and judge those people over there. And the prophets often come and, and tell them, look, you are pleading for the day of the Lord to come, but the day of the Lord is coming for you too. The way that that Amos describes it, is he says, uh, you plead for the day of the Lord to come, but it's like you're running from a lion and run into a bear. Or you run into your house to put your hand on the wall to brace yourself and catch your breath, but you put your hand on a viper. The day of the Lord is for you as well. And so Jesus' parable is a a warning, a word of warning to the people who are following him saying, hey, pay attention. Be watchful. Be vigilant with your lives. The day of the Lord is coming. The return of the Son of Man will come. And it's not going to be something that you can just chart out. It's not something that you're going to be able to circle on the calendar like, FYI, Jesus comes today. It's not going to work like that. But there's instead meant to be this expectation that my life is on the verge of reaching its fulfillment every day. Now, Jesus provides this relatively famous imagery that it'll be like two people walking up a hill and one disappears, or two women are grinding at the mill and one, one is gone suddenly. I first heard those images and a DC Talk song. Did anybody, was this anybody else's experience? Uh, okay, thank you. Um, that was my era of evangelicalism. I was born uh, and definitely in an environment where people were like talking about Jesus coming back and left behind was about to be a thing or, or was a thing. I vividly remember um, being at, I was, we were at church and my parents were helping, it was like a work day or something like that, and my parents were vacuuming or something, and I was deeply involved in my game, and I just suddenly realized I didn't know where anyone was, and I, I walked out, and they were gone, and I walked out in the parking lot, and I was like, it happened, the rapture, I'm, I'm left behind, I knew it, I knew I should have done something, I, now I'm stuck here all by myself, and uh, then my mom walked around the corner, and I was like, oh, thank you. So good to see you. Or we're in trouble together. Either way, I'm happy to see you. That was the environment that I kind of grew up in. So when I heard this scripture, this scripture was presented to me as a story about the rapture. This thing that people would just sort of vanish or ascend into the sky, which is, of course, not how Jesus is describing it. He's, he's saying that the last days will be like the days of Noah, and the people who are whisked away are not, the, are not Noah and his family. They're the people who are being judged. And so Jesus is describing this moment where people are disappearing for judgment, but that didn't really fit into the song or the theme of the age. So that's not how I ever heard it. And Jesus is tell, using these images of you're living your daily life, and then suddenly everything is radically different. And he's saying, it's like, imagine if you, if you owned a house and you knew that a thief was coming at a certain hour, you would be awake and you'd be prepared. Now, he's not saying God is a thief and he's terrifying and you need to sort of fight against him. That's, that's not, remember, parables work only in the respect to the direction that they're being aimed at. Jesus is aiming at the sense of expectation, not telling you to view God as a scary robber monster. 
He's saying, in the same way that you would be uh, preparing the house, you should prepare your own life. Because he says, even he doesn't know the day or the hour, nor do you. And Paul's instruction in the book of Romans is along similar lines. Like basically, wake up. The day of your full salvation, the day of your salvation is near. The night is further behind you than today than it was yesterday. The sun is almost risen. And what are his instructions then? Watch how you live your life. Pay attention to how you live. And it's worth noting the kinds of sin that, that he points out. Don't give yourself to orgies, drunkenness, sexual immorality, sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make to provision for the, no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And this is an extremely helpful word for us today, right now. Because Everything in our culture, in our context, is ramping up from the beginning of November, but certainly now, and preaching to us a message, now is the moment to gratify your desires. I was getting emails in my inbox from before the day of thanks, telling me to be ready to buy things. Get ready to spend your money on this, 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 this. Gratify your desires is where our culture teaches and what Scripture tells us is the opposite. Make no provision for the flesh. Do not gratify your desires. We are instead meant to orient our lives not around the immediate fulfillment and gratification of our flesh, but instead live forward to what is coming and what will be eternal. So that creates a watchfulness in you and I, or it should. Advent is doing its work in us. If we would together today for the next week, gather our families, gather our friends, and say, okay, what does it look like to live lives that long for and expect the return of Jesus? Now, a lot of times people have answered that question by responding in fear, by some people on the very edges of the extremes, cash out their bank accounts and live underground or in communes and wait for the meteor strike of God's return. They live in fear. Other people have said the return of Jesus is basically in the category of unicorns. It's maybe at best a nice hypothetical. And you put it in the drawer of concepts, ideas, close the drawer, never think about it again, and live the way that you want to live your life. But for the Christian who's attentive to Scripture, I would say that neither one of those options are on the table for us. One, Paul has already told us, Jesus has told us, we can't live the put it in a drawer kind of life. 
Because we believe that God is a God who came, we also believe that He is a God who comes. He is the God who was incarnate forever. And because of who He is, because He is a person, because Jesus wears our flesh, has our humanity, our conviction is that Jesus, we will live together again. Not in some far-off spiritual palace with the angels and the cherubs and the harps, but in the place that God made, the good world that He created, God will dwell with His people again. Because that is part of Christian conviction, we can't do the thing where we put the ideas in a drawer, shut the drawer, and live how we want. That matters. That has consequences. But we also... We don't have to live a life full of terror before God either. Because Jesus, the incarnate God who made us to dwell with him, didn't come the first time riding on a horse with a sword. That's not the, first, that's not the way he comes the first time. He does come as a baby in humble circumstances because the, the love of God stoops down low to speak to his little children that we might too understand. God doesn't ride in in judgment bearing the sword the first time. He comes in love and in humility. So for us, we don't have to live in terror. Now, certainly there is a word of warning in Jesus' words and in Paul's words. You can't just live the way that you want. There are real consequences for living for the gratification of your desires. That is not the way that God wants you or me to live. But we're invited into the fullness of the life of God, not out of fear, but out of joyful response. Because of who God is, because Jesus is born in a manger, because God is a good creator, because God is our Father, we are invited today to live in joyful expectation. We are invited today to live with a sense of happy anticipation, not instead of not fearful terror. My kids are pumped about Christmas. My son is already saying, I wish today was Christmas. And we're having to do the thing. We're like, buddy, it's Advent first. We're not, we don't get Christmas yet. But he's not looking to Christmas Day with terror. He's looking forward in joy and expectation. He cannot wait for that day to come. And our children, whether they your children or somebody else's children, kids can point the way for all of us to what our experience, what our disposition, our posture might be. We are meant to look forward to the return of Jesus with hopeful expectation, dancing on our toes, begging for that day to come. And it is not because we are ignorant of the sin that we acknowledge inside. It is because of it. I, I can't wait for the day when my soul will be at rest. Where the constant vigilance of my heart is not required. Because let me tell you, 
When the culture speaks to me a message of gratifying my desires, it finds in me a willing listener. I want to gratify my desires all the time. I orient my life in that direction by nature and by habit. And I cannot wait to live in a day where I am freed from perpetually pushing myself at the center of not only my life, but my family's life and everybody's life that I come into contact with. It is exhausting to constantly push against the temptation to please and center and worship myself. I cannot wait till I see Jesus face to face. And he relieves me of that burden. So I don't look forward to the day of the coming of the Son of Man with self-delusional, self-ignorance, like we have seen in, in our own past, in Israel's past. I look forward to the coming of Jesus out of sense of honesty. I want to be free from this. I look at the relationships that I have with other people, and I try to do my best to repair relationship and to, to repent and to make things right or to make things better. I cannot wait for the day when, as Paul says, there's no more jealousy or quarreling or strife. I was driving 12 hours from Michigan yesterday, and I cannot tell you how earnestly I prayed for the end of jealousy and quarreling and strife. At the end of our drive, it was going to be the end of it one way or the other, I could not wait for that day. It's terrible when it's in your car, in the backseat of your car, but all of us know as adults, when adults engage in it, it's nuclear. It's way worse. It's not always as loud, but it is painful and bitter and deep. And we all contribute. I cannot wait for the day when Jesus returns and my relationships are fully repaired and healed. When I no longer contribute to the mess of strife. So we, we do not look forward in ignorance. We, we do not put it in, in a drawer and say, that would be nice, but no. That's not us. We're not waiting for the return of Jesus uh, and in terror as, as to what might happen to us and fear that he is the ugly boogeyman, that he'll leave us behind or anything like that. We are looking to the realities of the, the coming of Jesus in the first Christmas, the first Advent, and from that drawing our hope for our second Advent. The great good news is that God is going to lift up, as Isaiah says, the mountain of the Lord. <coughs> In Isaiah chapter 2, Jerusalem is being described. We, we read in Psalm 122 today for our call to worship. This It's called a psalm of ascent as Israel would sing its way to Jerusalem for the festivals. And this emphasis on Jerusalem to us feels weird because we're really far from Jerusalem. Most of us will never make it to the actual city, Jerusalem. What is the deal with the mountain of the Lord described in Psalm 122 and Isaiah 2? For the Israelite mind, Jerusalem is the center of the whole universe. 
not necessarily because it's such an important geopolitical city, but because the temple of God is there. And it is the place where the God of Israel lives and dwells with his people. And what Isaiah describes is that one day, the mountain of the Lord will be so lifted up and exalted that all the nations will run into it. The law of the Lord will flow out from there, and we will finally know his way. This is the kind of expectation that the prophets, the psalm writers are, are bringing out in us. But what is waiting for us there in Jerusalem? Is Jesus on his throne? The enthroned son of David has already given us a foretaste of what his reign is like. And it is not a reign that is established with the strength of his arm and the edge of his sword. But Jesus is enthroned on the mountain of the Lord when he is crucified on that hill. The mountain of God is established forever. When the, when the counter-revolution, when the opposing governments of sin and darkness and evil are themselves destroyed and pierced, even as his own side is pierced. We don't look forward to the second coming of Jesus in fear anymore because we have seen him crucified and he has revealed to us the nature of God, holy and terrible in his righteousness and completely loving and self-giving that we might be shaded under his arms from the horrible deluge of judgment. In some ways, the judgment of God has already come, and it has come on Jesus instead of me. So when the scriptures invite us to a life of repentance, of putting away the gratification of the desires of the flesh, it is not just saying, be a better person. That is not a full vision of the Christian life. But it is instead saying, trade this horrible way of life for the life of God himself. Prepare yourself for the coming of the Son of Man. Prepare yourself for a life so good that you cannot even imagine it. Prepare yourself. Start living the kind of life now that is in touch with and flowing out of the divine life that will be your inheritance forever. Don't think that there's a finish line to your life or my life where, okay, then I can start living that way. The invitation is that God is offering to you His own divine, eternal kind and quality of life right now. Start living out of the goodness of God's own being. Live for the gratification of the Spirit, Paul would encourage us if we read the book of Galatians. Let the fruit of the Spirit blossom in your life instead of the works of the flesh binding you to this old way of darkness and death. The Son of Man has come and He is coming again. Be on guard, be watchful, 
and be full of hopeful expectation. We have already seen the nature of the civilization of the mountain of God. Jesus has established it and demonstrated in his own body. Would you then run in hopeful expectation? If today you are coming into this Advent season, you are coming full head on into the spirit of of this world's Christmas. You are invited today to hear the good news of the gospel. All the cheap, shiny, passing experiences that the world is offering you does not have to be your only inheritance. But instead, God is offering you the vast treasury of his own life. It is eternal and incorruptible. If you know that you've been giving yourself over to the gratification of your desires, intentionally or unintentionally, here's Jesus in front of you this morning. You get to turn around. The word is repent. Oftentimes we have this imagination that when God commands his people to repent, that act of repentance is a shameful moment. It's not. It's a wonderful thing. God's not mad at you when you repent. He's deliriously happy. You get him. You get his life. So the offer of repentance is not not offered to you with a wagging finger or a sword waved at you. It It is a beckoning to the life of God. If you know that you have been going the wrong way, and giving yourself over to the wrong kind of life. Turn around. Repent. If you have grown weary, grown weary in doing good, grown weary in enduring, grown weary with the state of the world, you should take heart. As Paul says, the night is further gone today than it was yesterday. The day of your salvation is drawing near. It is good news to hear that the Son of Man is stealing towards you. Would you then look to Him and ask Him to sustain you? He has more than enough in Himself to carry you along to that moment when your salvation arrives in full. God will lift up the mountain of the Lord. And you and I and all the nations will stream into it. And he will there teach us his way. And we will one day finally be free. When this coming of Jesus, it comes again. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that you come for us. That you have not left us a map and said, figure it out. Hope you get here someday. You have not sent out an invitation and a map with the invitation and said, I hope I get your RSVP. You have come for us. You have come to rescue us. God, we are a people that need rescuing. We are not so foolish as to believe that you're coming to rescue those people or those people. We know you are coming to rescue us. We are so grateful. We confess to you, God, that we too often gratify the desires of our flesh. That we are more invested in the life 
of the everyday, the mundane, the fleeting. We pray, God, that you would help us to be people who anticipate your coming, who are full of expectant joy, who long for the day when we will see your face. Father, I pray that you would help us in this season, this Advent season, to not be distracted by what the world offers, but instead we would embrace this time of waiting, that we would be able to look at what causes us real grief and pain and sorrow and joy, and that we would meditate on it and find you there with us, that our feasting in you would take on new richness in life. Lord, help us all. Help us, your people, to be faithful and to be patient, to be people who are bent on joy. We thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.